This podcast is brought to you by AG3D Printing. You can check us out at www.ag3d-printing.com. And if you want to help support the podcast, uh, go to our Amazon link on either this week's episode or any episode and on the homepage at todayinspace.net forward slash home. And do your shopping online as usual. Costs you nothing and helps support the podcast. Hello, everybody. It is September 19th, and it is episode 99 of Today in Space, which means next week's episode is episode 100 of the podcast, which, uh, honestly, up until this moment, when I just hit record, didn't really seem like much, but it, it... it's it's awesome. You know, I was texting John, who's been on here a few times, you know, and he congratulated me for the, the, you know, big milestone, you know, and it really is. I mean, it's it's crazy. A hundred episodes. Next episode, um, is wild. That's crazy. I mean, let's do the math real quick. Like, it, it, just just to talk about how much goddamn time I've been talking for. Holy crap. Um, so let's just say each episode's uh, 50 minutes, right? So... Wow, we're talking like 83 hours of talking. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Uh, but I-, I wouldn't have made it to 100 episodes if I wasn't extremely passionate about space travel and and wanting to be, you know, part of the conversation of where we go next. You know, where does the industry go? Where, you know, I, I remember as a freshman in college deciding to choose to become an aerospace engineer, you know, part of the reason being I was just like, oh, you can do that as a career? I... I always thought that was cool. Like, that's awesome. I can actually go to school for that. Let's do that. And I remember at the time it was, it almost seemed like a stagnant thing. Like there really wasn't much going on. And then there started popping up all these little things like, uh, the biggest one being SpaceX, this private company that's doing what a bunch of other millionaires have tried to do, which is create a, a, a space company, but they were doing it in a way that just seemed different and more exciting. And, you know, I had no idea who Elon Musk was at the time. And I remember thinking, man, I just can't wait to get into this stuff. And, you know, even though I have always thought of myself being, you know, um, behind the desk, you know, working on some of the scientific projects, which I'm not saying is out of the question. 
But if, for whatever reason, this was the only avenue I had in, you know, the aerospace industry, this is pretty fucking cool, man. Like, I get to come on here every week and there are people who are willing to listen (laughs) to me talk craziness every week. Just, you know, a long stream of consciousness, you know, every week. Like, it's pretty crazy. And, you know, we, we get to cover some of the things every week. And and I'm trying to do something different. What we've been trying to do here is something different every week, which is bring a a, a jumping off point for anybody who has any kind of skin in the space game. Whether you're going to school for it, whether you're working in it, or if you just love space, but you're kind of scared to start listening to something super technical because you don't want to sound stupid. Like we're here to kind of open up the gap for everybody. It's a place to come listen to the news that's going on today in space. Oh, look at that. And, you know, I've been bringing on some of my uh, friends who are in science and trying to get, pick their minds from, you know, uh, how does their field go into space? You know, next week, the hundredth episode, I'm having John Neary and Neil Crawford, my two friends from the first Drinking with Engineers, where we talked about genetics in space and how it related to the year in space mission. And I brought them back on so we could talk a little bit more about what's going on with Kate Rubens and, and sequencing DNA in space. You know, I've also had my other friends on here, like John and Megan, you know, John being uh, a musician and Megan, who's uh, an entrepreneur, going to, going to work for herself and, and trying to um, find her path as a, her own her own leader, you know, as and I relate to that extre- so much because that's what I'm trying to do here. You know, in in the span of 100 episodes, I've gone from starting 3D printing as a cool hobby to now I have a 3D printing service. That I can help offer to people, anyone who wants to get something 3D printed or has a project or some idea, you know, do what I feel like is, is a great service for people. And, you know, we've also had the assistant on here. We talk about leadership and we talk about what it's like to coach and, and, and teach people. And I intend to have plenty more human beings on here from a wide variety of areas because I don't think you need to be a scientist to really talk about the space industry. And I don't think that you need to be someone that works at NASA or SpaceX for you to have ideas about the space industry. You know, I think that was, I think after the science fiction era of space died, I think that's when a lot of people kind of went away from from thinking about space and went away from, you know, thinking that they could even be a part of space. I think it, it the dream died with the science fiction almost. Um, I mean, obviously, that's not 100% true. I mean, uh, look what's going on right now. We're, we're in the, the big bursting bubble of the space industry once again, you know, and, and just space thought. I mean, think about all the movies that have come out in the last few years. 
um, from Interstellar to Gravity to the new Star Trek revamp. Um, the Star Wars movies are, are restarting again, and and countless others. We've we've talked about so many on here. It, this is this this new space race, this private space race that's going on, is so exciting, and it it brings it's bringing back uh, that childish uh, imagination that of you know what we could do in space. You know, I think the Mars conversation has been huge about that. You know, whether you want to <laughs> think that Mars One is a success or not as John Doherty and I discuss at length every time I go on his show, you know, it's one of the reasons that people are still talking about going to Mars. I mean, going to Mars is a, is a topic that whenever you talk about space, you're almost guaranteed that someone's going to talk about, well, you know, would you go to Mars? Would you live on Mars? You know, getting people thinking about that again is, is, necessary for us to make those big steps forward to then you know trudge through the difficulty that is space travel you know as we'll talk later about in this episode you know space travel is one of the most difficult things human beings have ever done and you know the last spacex anomaly on slc 40 i mean that's that's a prime example of the fact that, hey, even during a static fire test where you're just fueling the space, the, the rocket, things can go wrong. Really wrong. And if we don't have that, that imagination, that, that, that internal drive that human beings are, want to go to Mars, then... Incidents like that are going to sniff the flame out. So I don't see a better time other than now for the space industry. And I f- consider myself extremely lucky that I got into it when I did. You know, and we're going to be covering all this stuff for as long as I can do this. <laughs> but it has been one hell of a trip, man. And I think. Every single I'm doing the thank yous now um, because we're just going to dive into it next week uh, on Space DNA. So we're kind of doing the episode 100 uh, um, reminiscing on this episode. So thank you, everybody who's been listening from day one or if you just started listening. Thank you. I, I can't I, 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 I still can't believe people are still willing to listen uh, to my craziness every week. Uh, but I'm really glad that you are, and, and we made it to 100 episodes. I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, you know, for me, this has just been a crazy journey. And, you know, to think about it, when I first started this out, I was still uh, trying to figure out how I was going to graduate college, you know, um, that that was a that was a journey, uh, a learning experience in itself. Um, I when I started this, I had just been, uh, I had just lost my job. Uh, you know, the research, uh, I was doing the money ran out and now I was doing all this crazy stuff and cool engineering stuff. And then all of a sudden, poof, it went away. Um, but I had this show, you know, and then 
this became my obsession and then I got a 3D printer and then that became my obsession and you know uh, I I've talked about it on on a few of these episodes uh, especially uh I don't remember where but uh somewhere in the in the episodes it's been 99 of them um somewhere back towards the, the first 25 I think maybe 40 you know I talked about the job search and how difficult that was and uh you know, I've also been been around the block as far as like, I mean, in, in the span of 100 episodes, I, I've gone through an injury. You know, I slipped and fell one February um, uh, when I was going to school, finishing up my degree and like had a back and neck contusion. And it has been incredible these last 100 episodes or so, 99. Um, I've learned a lot about myself. I've changed as a person completely. I mean, just my confidence on the mic alone is huge. Uh, You know, I have a whole process now for these shows, you know, to kind of, you know, just, just the whole act of compiling your thoughts and then somehow making them make any kind of sense is a chore in itself. Um, But not only that, I've learned a, a lot about, kind of going to the next level, you know. When you really want to do something, you you find a way. You find a way. And that's only part of it because, you know, along the way, once you already know that you're determined enough that you're going to keep doing it, then then you don't realize until a little bit later that, you know, you're going to pick up all these little things along the way these little skills, these little tricks that you're going to find, you know, um, I, I would not be able to have done a hundred episodes if I didn't find these little, little mind hacks for myself on how to keep myself, you know, how do I put out the best show I can put out on a weekly basis? You know, how, how can I get my thoughts down and, and not forget that really great idea I had? And then all of a sudden it's gone. Like, you know, all those little things I, I've learned throughout this, and it, it's translated to my work. It's translated to my my social life, my family life. You know, I feel like I'm a lot more put together as a human being. Although, I would argue that uh, you know it's always a uh, a a crazy crazy battle uh, every day, just trying to you know put all the things together. But I have a like I said, I have these mind hacks that I use. And, uh, uh, I wouldn't have been able to find, found those if I had not been true to myself to analyze who I am as a real person. You know, if I had been bullshitting myself, I wouldn't have made it to a hundred episodes. So, uh, here's to not bullshitting yourself. Here's to staying towards whatever you want to do. You know, you're the only person who can do that. And... Here's to evolving as a person. All right. So let's get into this week's episode. Enough of the reminiscing. And yeah, man. Episode 99. Let's do it. In orbital news, we have some updated information on, you know, what's going on with the whole SpaceX post anomaly on Space Launch Complex 40 information, although we still don't know or have official word what 
may have happened. We do have word from SpaceX's president, Gwen Shotwell, uh, from this past Tuesday that says they expect to be returning to flight as early as November of this year, which uh, is is great news. I mean, uh, even though they may not have found out the root cause, which of course would be their first you know, root of action, would be to make sure whatever happened doesn't happen again. Uh, they're also going to be working on fixing Space Launch Complex 40. Um, but, you know, we've said it in a different episode, uh, you know, SpaceX luckily has two other locations that they can launch from. You know, at the same time that they've been doing all this work, they've also been working on revamping the uh, Space Launch, uh, I think it's 39A, which used to be an old... Yeah, it's, it's Pad 39A. So it was an old um, space shuttle complex uh, at Kennedy Space Center. And uh, they've been uh, refurbishing it and you know making it ready for uh, SpaceX's operation. So the launch in November uh, is actually going to happen off the East Coast at Pad 39A. Um, and the other one in Vandenberg is also available. Uh, for any other assorted customers that they may have, um, which is which is really great to hear. You know, I mean, even though we still don't know what really happened, and we only have tiny glimpses of things that uh, we find on the internet, like last episode, that it could have been you know welding joints or something like that. Um, it is definitely interesting that it's taken this long. Um, but I mean, if if SpaceX's record has shown anything, it's that as long as they've got a little bit of time and they they've got the knowledge to figure this kind of stuff out, and uh, with the uh, space laser like focus of Elon Musk, um, I doubt that anything, no rock is going to be unturned. And uh, actually, further along in this Universe Today article uh, that we're getting all this information from. Um, Gwen Shotwell said, you know, so now let's look to the good. You know, we did have an extraordinary launch here. We launched nine times in just under eight months in the past year successfully. You know, she was also saying that, you know, we rolled out a new vehicle, which we flew last December, and that vehicle was the vehicle that was designed to land. And so we did recover the first stage six times, twice back on land and four times on the drone ship, which I think is an extraordinarily uh, is an extraordinary move for the industry. I don't know that everyone appreciates it, but certainly that is a leap forward in launches for our customers. You know, and it's true. I mean, you know, think back in in the history of this podcast, and never mind in the history of the space industry before SpaceX landed that rocket and Blue Origins landed a rocket. Landing rockets was no, not going to happen, a waste of your time, don't even try it. We couldn't do it. Why would you be able to do it? And they didn't just do it once. They landed it twice on land and four times on a drone ship in the middle of the goddamn ocean. You know, and then to think that they're not going to be able to bounce back from some anomaly that happened on the space pad just seems ludicrous to me. I mean, if you look at their track record, they are a smart, intelligent, in- innovative, and 
just extraordinary company that every move they make is moving forward. And they don't just make one move forward. While they're making one move forward, they've already made four in the same direction. You know, they're always working on things while they're working on things. Everything is in a different stage of development. You know, it's this amazing juggling act that they've got going on. And, you know, while they're figuring out how to land a rocket, they're also working on um, the Falcon Heavy rocket, which is going to help bring things to Mars. And that's based solely on what the Falcon 9 is at, at its core, which is nine core uh, Merlin engines. You know, this, I, I hope I'm right on that. I'm just sh- shooting it out there. But um, if I'm wrong, call me out on it. Email me. Um, <laughs> I'm on a roll here. So, you know, they're doing all these things and keeping it, you know, literally the, uh, in the right path, you know, not creating, recreating an entire new rocket for an entire new system. They're basing it off of technology that they're building themselves. That they know works, you know, why, why, why rebuild the rocket? Why, why reinvent the wheel if it works and you can, and you can then, you know, compound it to then make an even better rocket, an even better system, do it. You know, it's one of those things where in engineering, you know, you always shoot for, you know, it's kind of like the, the best example is the iPhone and, and the way that Apple, Apple's system intuitively works with everything else. Apple, you know, your iPod, iPad, I poop, iPad syncs with your laptop, your MacBook. It syncs with your iWatch. It syncs with your iTouch, you know, all of them sync together and work very well together. And that's what you see from SpaceX. It's a Silicon Valley thing that um, is has been brought to the space industry. And, you know, one of the other things uh, that they've done, which I, I have to say, um, uh, I had a conversation with someone the other day, with this last rocket, um, someone was saying that it's actually it was one of the rockets that had been flown before these reusable rockets, because again, this is another big thing that they're trying to do is not only just launch rockets and land them and go to Mars and be the first private company to do all of this, the, all of these things. Um, they're also trying to reuse these landed rockets, the six that they've brought back there. Uh, I don't know if all six are viable for launch. I don't think all six are. I think one of them at least had too much damage, but, they're trying to reuse them. And two days prior to that launch pad explosion, they signed a contract to use one of the first, uh, one of their, uh, one of their recycled flight proven rockets. I'm not sure if it's the first one. Um, I mean, that, that's a big deal. I mean, that's a, that's a big step forward. That's, um, you know, you can always talk about being able to use reusable rockets and that it's that, that is essentially what's going to bring the cost of rockets down. Uh, but to actually have the first sale is something, that's, that's a huge step in the right direction. Now, after that explosion on the pad, do you think some people were like, ah, crap, uh, you know, yeah, I'm sure there were those feelings, but at the same time, I don't expect that problem to crop up again. 
and we still don't even know what the problem was. You know, I've I've read a few articles that you know are talking about uh, a lot of articles actually, um, more that outweigh the good ones about you know where is SpaceX going? You know, is is their vehicle viable? You know, um, one of the arguments being that you know they've had uh, two rocket explosions in the span of I don't remember what they were talking about maybe a year. Um, they're two totally different situations and this one we don't even know what happened um but going back to the good they've actually sold their first contract with one of their reusable rockets and it's going to be the first time this is done ever so again another thing in the industry that has never been done that they're going to be trying um and it actually comes uh the the person who's contracted that first uh, reusable launch is the SES uh, Luxembourg uh, company, which um, they've launched. Uh, they're one of the first customers for SpaceX. Uh, they have a telecom satellite, uh, SES 10, and that's going to be the first one uh, ever launched. Uh, you know, and and SES themselves had has said that they're uh, <laughs> very excited to join this mission uh, to to be a part of it. You know, they were one of the first ones to launch with SpaceX, so it's it's a big deal. But, um, you know, if I go to this article, which will be available on the website, so it says here, you know, having been the first commercial satellite operator to launch with SpaceX back in 2013, we are excited to once again be the first customer to launch on SpaceX's first ever mission using a flight-proven rocket. We believe reusable rockets will open up a new era of space flight and make access to space more efficient in terms of cost and manifest management. Uh, this was said by Martin Hallowell, Chief Technology Officer at SES, uh, the CTO. Uh, this new agreement reached with SpaceX once again illustrates the faith we have in their technical and operational expertise. The due diligence the SpaceX team has demonstrated throughout the design and testing of the SES mission launch vehicle gives us full confidence that SpaceX is capable of launching our first SES satellite dedicated to Latin America into space. You know, and, and it's, it's just goes to show you that, you know, this company really does have faith. Uh, but you know, what are some of the things that, you know, how do you test that, uh, you know, a, a, a rocket is relaunchable? How, how do you know it's going to survive? Uh, going forward, you know, being launched again. So, you know, they go through these careful inspection processes. You know, they check the structural integrity. They check all the booster systems, the plumbing, the avionics, uh, and they retest the first stage Merlin 1D engines too. Um, they have multiple full duration hot fire tests um, that they've already tested and conducted at the SpaceX test facility in McGregor, Texas. And that includes igniting all nine, aha, see, I was right, all nine of the first stage Merlin 1D engines uh, that are at the base of the rocket. And they do that for three minutes. So what it seems like is it, it's, it's just a full, you know, redo and rehashing of the rocket. Um, it's going to, you know, give it, give it the full oil change. Well, take out all the fluids, let's redo everything, and uh, let's get this thing kicked back up. Um, so, uh, a, a lot of really cool things 
moving forward here for SpaceX, you know, one incident, one anomaly on a space pad is not going to ruin a company like this. And even though at the exact time that that rocket exploded on the launch pad, uh, the Tesla stock, the other company that Elon Musk runs, uh, plummeted $60 in its price, God knows why, because uh, the stock market is weird as fuck, um, but one thing like that is not going to ruin a company like this. They they have done too much. They've got, what is it, over 70 launches, $10 billion worth of, of launch manifest. Like, this company is not going to be tripped up by one mistake, but it is a reminder that space travel is hard, it's difficult, it's not easy, and you're going to hit bumps in the road. And it's what you do with those mistakes and those failures that proves what happens next. You know, one of the biggest failures in um, human spaceflight, Apollo 13, turned out to be one of the most glorious days in American space history because they were able to take essentially a death sentence and figure out a way with what was available to return those human beings back to Earth. We've all seen the movie. If you're even more hardcore, you've looked into the history. You know, that, if you want to talk about a failure or, 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 or like a death sentence for NASA, that was it. And those people, because they are some of the most dedicated and, and just hardcore and ingenious people, they were able to figure out a way to get those people home. So I have no doubt that SpaceX is going to be able to turn this back around, not only make sure that it doesn't happen in the future, but really really amp themselves up so that the next things that they're going to do, they're going to be jazzed. I think, I think it's actually a good thing for a company like SpaceX. You know, we saw it happen with the last explosion that happened. Elon Musk said it himself, you know, we've gotten fucking soft is, uh, if I'm going to paraphrase what he said, you know, um, a company like that, that's just at the bleeding edge of, of an industry, you know, you don't want them to get comfortable. Now, should it take a, a $60 million rocket and a $200 million satellite to explode on the launch pad for you guys to crank it up? No. I don't think it should take $260 million for that to happen. But if it does happen, you know, these people are forged in flame. These people are forged in, in, in the, the, the Marines of engineering, you know. That's what that's what they're doing at SpaceX. They are the Marines. They are the front line. They and they need to be able to adapt to any situation and succeed in any situation. And what we'll talk about in the next segment here is uh, partly what SpaceX. Uh, another thing that SpaceX has been able to do, but really what uh, it's it's a good it's a great story that depicts the kind of people and the kind of thinking that the space industry has and what it takes to be in that industry. And through no coincidence, it actually involves the anomaly 
at Space Launch Complex 40 and the SpaceX explosion. And it's the response team that has to deal with those things because I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't know there was a response team uh, up until I read this article this week. And it's, uh, it's fascinating. It's an incredible job. Oh, my God. Um, and what they did to help solve one of the biggest explosions that's happened in the last few decades is, uh, is really incredible. So let's get into it. So this is the story of the 45th Space Wing that responded to the explosion at SpaceX's Space Launch Complex 40 on September 1st, 2016. And what I'm going to do here is read the post that was uh, put up on the 45th Space Wing's page uh, by Lieutenant Colonel Greg Lindsay of the 45th Mission Support Group Commander, uh, the 45th Mission Support Group Commander of Detachment 1. Um, it was posted a week later. So what I'm going to do is uh, do my best to hopefully recapture this moment uh, in space history here. <clears throat> Last week, the 45th Space Wing's incident management team responded to the Falcon 9 static test fire anomaly on Space Launch Complex 40. The explosion occurred September 1st at approximately 9.07 a.m., as many of us were just returning from our morning meetings. Minutes later, I got the call. It's the call no one wants to hear, but one for which we constantly train. The call came over the safety net, followed by a call from the fire chief. There has been an explosion on pad 40. We immediately dispatched fire trucks to a staging position and began evacuating all nearby facilities. Next step was to activate our Cape Canaveral Air Force Station Emergency Operations Center, EOC, a joint team comprised of military, government, civilians, and contracted personnel from across the 45th Space Wing. This team provides expertise in many critical functional areas, so I manage the response phase of the operation. Since the incident occurred during a planned hazardous operation, our customer, SpaceX, had coordinated with members of the 45th Security Forces Squadron to clear a predetermined safe zone known as a blast danger area to prevent any injuries in the events that an anomaly would occur. Because the BDA had been established, my pad safety representative was able to verify that the BDA was clear prior to the the start of the test, which provided us with the good news that no one was injured within that safe zone. Security was able to immediately account for the security officers who formed within that safe zone. Security was able to immediately account for their security officers who formed the cordon of the BDA, so very quickly I was assured that we had 100% accountability with no injuries. With that information, I knew that our team could focus on the situation at the pad or so I thought. As our team gathered in the EOC, we conducted an initial briefing to establish a baseline of where each emergency support function and subject matter expert was in regards to their individual response efforts and where they could assist. The ESFs are functions, functions such as the fire department, security emergency management, and SMEs are representatives from each of our ranger users explosive ordnance disposal, pad safety, and a host of others who contribute valuable insight to this dynamic response. 
While you might think our immediate concern was the fires on the pad and their sources, my civil engineer representative informed me that during the explosion, the deluge system had been damaged and most of the water was being shot up into the air rather than being dispersed across the pad as designed. The SpaceX rep informed me that while the deluge wasn't functioning optimally, it was still helping to suppress the fire somewhat. That was fine except for one thing. Our 1.2 million gallon tank was being depleted at a rapid rate, and there was no way to refill the tanks fast enough to sustain the output. If the tanks ran dry, then the motors to the pumps would burn up, which would render the deluge system inoperable for other launch pads, meaning our upcoming ULA launch might then be in danger. Another issue I had to immediately consider were the many different high-pressure systems on the pad and whether or not they had been compromised or how to bring the pressures down if I needed. Our team and I decided to take a multitask approach as we decided to send in our initial response team to shut down the pumps and turn off one of the high-pressure systems that could be assessed from outside the perimeter of the launch pad. No sooner had we accomplished the securing of the pumps when I was approached by another one of the range users who explained that they were losing pressure on the chillers at at a neighboring launch complex. Without those chillers, the spacecraft for the next launch would be lost. Needless to say, at this point, I had to reestablish our priorities and get a team working on a way to get our IRT into Space Launch Complex 41 to allow access for technicians to enter in order to make the necessary repairs. As we were reviewing the plan, word came in from Pad 41 that all the pressures were lost and the technicians had to get the spacecraft had to get to the spacecraft immediately. This is a situation when good working relationships with our counterparts at Kennedy Space Center came into play. We were able to coordinate with the Kennedy Space Center EOC for access through their roadblocks and get the required support to the spacecraft in plenty of time to not only save the spacecraft but to keep the planned launch on schedule. Perhaps the most dangerous part of our response was after the fires were out. This is when it's time to go in and clear the launch pad of any hazardous debris. Naturally, there may be pieces of jagged metal or broken blocks of concrete lying around, but there are also remnants of hazardous commodities as well as the possibility of unexploded ordnance on the scene. A team of trained Air Force experts consisting of EOD, Fire Department, and Environmental Health and Pad Safety personnel held the perimeter of the launch complex in order to assess the situation from a closer vantage point throughout the day. EOD airmen are trained to detect, dispose, and render safe any possible explosive threats, while environmental health personnel continued to monitor the air quality to ensure it was safe for emergency responders and the general public. Fire Department and Safety Range officials monitored the liquid holding tanks for flare-ups and pressure issues. Clearing the pad is extremely dangerous and requires careful planning by all of the members of the response team. EOD, Environmental Health, the Fire Department, Pad Safety, and our SpaceX representatives were all instrumental in putting together a carefully orchestrated plan which allowed each function to accomplish their task in a safe manner that allowed the next function to proceed in a much safer environment. It's also important to mention that all of these tasks were tackled by our response teams during almost constant lightning and tornado watches, followed by the pending tropical storm Hermine that was coming across Florida. 
Managing a crisis is one thing. Piling on significant weather events only added to the overall complexity of the entire day. Because emergency response is so dangerous, there are times when we must be willing to think a little outside the box. For example, valves need to be shut down in order to make them safe. One course of action we considered was to use one of the robots operated by our EOD team. While we ultimately decided not to go that route, it's important to note how our team works through these scenarios to solve various problems that present themselves during such an incident. One suggestion we did pursue was one made by the EOC manager, that we should explore the possibility of getting one of NASA's unmanned aircraft systems in the air. Once again, our Kennedy Space Center counterparts shared resources with us we were more than eager to, to support. I had the SpaceX rep meet them at the staging area with a map of the pad and suggested flight paths covering areas of particular concern to be filmed. It wasn't too long after that first phone call until our incident commander was reviewing footage from the first flight over the pad prior to the IRT, making its initial entry onto the pad itself. This partnership of sharing resources between mission partners allowed us to quickly provide the IRT with a lot of visual details of what they would encounter at the pad, and when, in a dynamic situation like this, having a visual picture adds to our capability and strengthens our overall response timelines and efforts. As darkness came, EOC members continued to monitor the situation throughout the night to ensure the safety of our personnel and the public. It was a rewarding experience from the standpoint as an EOC director to sit in the seat and be supported by so many highly trained and skilled professionals. Responding to a contingency is never something we want to do, but it is good to know that when we have to, I have a team that can work through the chaos in a calm and calculated manner. A team that sets priorities in a dynamic environment, accomplishing tasks while keeping our people and the public safe. This is a capability that you don't want to have to use, but you're glad is there. Space is inherently dangerous. On this day, we were faced with a difficult challenge, but one we were ready for. Moving forward, there will be some rebuilding that is necessary, but everyone went home safe to their families that night and woke up the next morning ready to go at it again. Our range is compromised of the most knowledgeable, professional, and committed personnel in the launch business today. This is what makes our range unique and speaks to our commitment to providing assured access to space. So thank you, Lieutenant Colonel Greg Lindsay, for that incredible write-up of uh, an account of uh, the members of the 45th Space Wing that you know, went in there and dealt with a situation that's arguably one of one of the most dangerous situations we've had on a launch pad since the what or you know the nineties. Uh, you know, and and it, and it it tells a story of 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 teamwork that that needs to happen in a situation like that. You know. Um, it's it's incredible to hear all you know it was incredible to hear about the story in the first place but even more to hear about all the intricate things that happen behind the scenes in the space industry you know 
I just randomly saw this article online on Facebook and started reading this and was just completely drawn into it. I mean, this could have been a very a, a, a blow to everybody at in the space industry. And these are the first responders. These are the people that go in there and and stake their lives to solve these dangerous, dangerous situations. And as you said, it's it's a situation that you never want to have to do. But they had the right people. You know, their team worked well together. And it wasn't just the 45th Space Wing either. I mean, we're talking about... Um, we're talking about SpaceX being involved. We're talking about Kennedy Space Center being involved, and and NASA and and all these other just entities being involved and people being involved. Um, and you know he kind of touches on it a little towards the end, but you know he was saying you know at times like these it's good to it's it's a good thing that we have a good relationship with, you know, Kennedy Space Center and, and things like that. And you can only imagine, like, you know, you take for granted a good relationship like that until a situation like this, until you need them, you know, and you need to work together. Um, and I think a story like this, it, we can all take a lot from uh, and learn from, you know, hopefully we, like like we all hope you know, we don't have to deal with a situation like this. And you're not always going to have a team available like this. And I, I can think of plenty of situations right now uh, where if, you know, shit went down, can you rely on the people that are around you? You know, I think I think the space industry being what it is and the people who are involved in space their passion for for making assured access to space for going to the next frontier for for going where no one has gone before you know people may have egos but at the end of the day this is about everybody this is about the goal of space travel you know I feel like those egos are going to drop pretty quickly. Um, so an amazing story about the 45th Space Wing and everyone involved in that, about dealing with a massive issue. I mean, it, you know, I learned a lot from this, you know, not just the fact that it's a bunch of fuel, but that, you know, ordinances, parts of, of the rocket or even the satellites themselves or parts of the parts of the pad might even possibly explode, you know? And I thought that that drone fly over to take pictures and then, you know, check in with the SpaceX rep and the the Kennedy Space Center um, peeps to, to see, okay, you know, here's the map, here's what was there, you know, this is what you're going to be looking for. And then to coordinate with the people on the phone, you know, as soon as that video comes in, okay, we're going to be doing this, this, and this, and this, and like... Uh, the coordination of all that and getting it done, this is a proud, proud moment of teamwork for the space industry. And I'm so glad that we were able to to share it. And I, I hope you enjoyed that, that retelling. Um, and, 
you know, I have to thank once again, Lieutenant Colonel Greg Lindsay for putting it together so eloquently. I mean, all I did was reread it, but, uh, you know, thank you so much for everything that you do and the entire 45th space wing and everyone who was involved in this, you guys did a fantastic job and, uh, we arguably couldn't have had an Osiris Rex mission had this gone poorly. I mean, the Osiris Rex mission, which is which is happening right now, is is in space, is on its way to an asteroid that could potentially hit us in the twenty late twenty second century, but is also the egg of the early solar system that we're going to investigate. You know, this explosion could have ruined that mission. Had had this team, this response team, not done what they did. So it's a major accomplishment, and I appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you for everything you guys did. And that wraps up this week's episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, This has been episode 99 of Today in Space. Uh, Next week, uh, it will be ready for you Monday morning for uh, for your morning drive. Episode 100, Drinking with Engineers although they are geneticists slash biologists, technically not engineers. I'm the engineer, but that's besides the point. Drinking with engineers, we're going to be talking about space DNA and all the little things that go along with that. We're going to talk about Kate Rubens, uh, her sequencing the first DNA in space. You know, what does gravity have a play with DNA? You know, what, what is that? I'm going to talk more about DNA. I'm going to learn a little bit more about DNA. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of nonsense as well. Um, and it's going to be a blast to have, uh, two of my best friends from college. Uh, and it's just going to be a great time. Uh, that's how I wanted to spend episode 100 was just having a good time. So as always spread love, spread science and thank you all once again for listening and don't forget to spread the word all right tell your friends about me all right uh as always enjoy yourselves go out there and we'll talk to you next week bye